Glad you're here. My name is Joe. I'm an associate minister here at Real Life. And if you are a guest here, thanks for coming out and uh, visiting us. We're glad that you did. And I hope today is a blessed day for you. And uh, if you're watching online, welcome and good morning. We are glad you've tuned in. And uh, we are continuing on a conversation called Looking Up which is an exploration of a set of psalms that would have been sung uh, as uh, the Israelites, the Jewish people, would have made uh, a journey into Jerusalem at different times of the year. And we're going to explore that more in just a little bit. But first, I'm curious if any of you out there were like me when you were a kid in this way. It would be a Friday night. You would invite your best friend over to spend the night. You would convince mom and dad to take you to the local Blockbuster or Hollywood video, depending on what your jam was, and you would spend the next hour or so, far too long in your parents' opinion, going up and down every aisle trying to pick out the perfect video game to rent. Now, we did this and we would spend so much time, and this was such an important decision, because back then, you had no idea what was coming. You didn't have YouTube to check out what games were like. You were just excited to show up in the aisle and see what new games were there. And you would look at every box cover, because they had this graphic and this art. You'd flip the box over to see maybe, is there a still image on it to show you what that game might be like? Because heaven forbid, you pick out a game that looked cool on the cover, but it was terrible in real life. And so you had to make a decision. Am I going to choose something I don't know or something I do? Like Contra. Man, we played Contra all the time. Anybody Contra out there? No? Up, down, up, down, left, right, left, right, A, B, A, B, start? No? Was that it? Anyway, so... So we did this. This is a picture of me in the early 80s uh, with my siblings and uh, sitting appropriately distanced, I might add, from the television, uh, playing our Nintendo. Yes, come on now. Anybody have that fireplace? Couch up there? This is classic 80s, man, this color scheme. We have this big graphic on the wall of like a forest, and I'm like... I don't understand the design, but that, that was us uh, playing our Nintendo, and we loved it. And if you were the one that was coming over to my house to spend the night, we would have made a pact at the Blockbuster. We would have made a deal with each other that whatever game we rent that night, we would stay up all night until we beat the video game. Like, literally over and over and over again. We'd write down, like, tips of how to beat the boss that we died in so that next time we got to it, uh, after we hit continue, We'd know how to beat them next time. And we'd spend up all, all night. And, uh, and sometimes this would last, you know, three, going to sleep three, four, maybe five in the morning where we'd finally beat the game and we would crash on the floor. Now, ultimately, if you were in my house, you would hear uh, in the early mornings a loud, booming voice shouting to the downstairs something like this. Boy, time to get up which ultimately meant send your friend home because we have work to do. Saturday mornings were work in our house, and uh, we would have to get up, 
and we'd have to go to work. Work was a high value in our household. Um, growing up, doing work all the time, hard work. My dad learned hard work from his dad, and, and, and my dad taught hard work to me. Uh, this is a picture of me um, somewhere in the late 90s uh, with my grandfather. He was, uh, this was in his shop. Um, he was a contractor. He built homes in southern Alabama, and I would spend my time playing with every power tool you can imagine. And before you congratulate my grandfather for the perceived safety precautions that he had, I just thought it looked cool. And clearly with my high sense of fashion with those shorts, I was on to something. This is the 80s, guys. We didn't care about safety back then, all right? Um, but but this, this was my hard work. It was a part of my life and, uh, uh, and always has been. And I'm super thankful for that. I, I am blessed that my father instilled that into me. And, and, and hopefully, maybe I've passed some of that on to, to my two children. And, um, but, but it was a big part of our lives. Um, as much as it was a blessing, also very much... A curse in this way um, I knew my value in the house had to do with the things that I accomplished the times that I heard good job in my home was always associated with a task I accomplished and so I knew very on as a kid my value and worth was about the things I got done because those are the ways that I heard good job and even to this day, I still carry the weights and chains of a performance mentality around my neck, not unlike the Jacob Marley in A Christmas Story. And as much as that served me well in my life, it's also held me back in a lot of ways. You see, I still do simple things like when I do a project around the house, I, I repair something, I add something, I fix something, or even just mow the lawn. The first thing I find myself doing is going, honey, honey, come here, look. That's a good-looking lawn, isn't it? Look at that, good, that. Look at that trim job. And I'm looking for something. I'm wanting something. I want to hear the, yeah, it looks great, Joe. Good job, Joe. And even as I've grown into adulthood, I have found myself wearing those chains of performance, needing the longing of that approval that I've carried with me. It's been a hard lesson to learn, honestly, that Jane doesn't love me simply for what I can do for her, but because of who I am. That's still a hard lesson for me to learn. In fact, the first time that that really hit me the hardest was the first time I heard that Jesus loves me. The first time I felt seen in my life was when I discovered that Jesus loves me for me, not because of what I did for him or could do for him. And that changed the course of my life, and I've been an apprentice of his ever since because he saw me. And so I still struggle with that, 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 desire for performance and to be seen and to be heard and I don't think I'm alone in that to some degree I think some most of us have some of this within us maybe some a little bit lesser maybe some a little bit more but we all carry within us this thing of performance of work of what we do and it and it's not by chance you see we live in a world and in a culture that puts a high value on what you do 
the output that you give in a culture like America has a high value. We all, in some way, belong to the cult of work. Don't believe me? Let's think back to the last conversation you had at a party. You are hanging out with people that maybe you didn't know very well, or you're in an environment where you're around people and you're meeting them for the first time. I would probably uh, be right in guessing that out of the top three questions that you asked this person that you just met, one of those questions might have been, can you guess it? What do you do? So we even do it in our language, don't we? The questions we ask are about what is the thing that you do? Not merely about who are you? Because we, we, we confuse these two things. It's a problem. It's a problem for me, and I think it's a problem for most of us. Now, I've spoken in the past about the dangers of an overwork, overperformance culture and, and the effects it has on our families and health, and that's not this message, but I want to make one observation really quick. As I've observed and, and participate in being around this younger generation, part of uh, what I do here is I oversee our youth ministry here at, at Real Life, and so I get to hang out with some of the most amazing students I have ever been around in my entire life. And, uh, and, I, and I watch and I, and I observe this, this next generation coming up, and, uh, and I wonder sometimes if, if, if this younger generation hasn't maybe looked at the way that we've dealt with work or the way that it's impacted our lives and are beginning to reject it. You see, I hear statements from people at times to go, oh, this, this younger generation, man, they're just so lazy. They have no work ethic. Or maybe they've just watched us long enough and said it's not worth it. Maybe they've just been observing us and the unhealthy ways that we use performance and work and are just going, yeah, I don't want that. I don't want that. Maybe. Just maybe. And so when we, when we look at this next generation coming up, we got, we got to actually ask the question, what have we modeled to them? And maybe what they're rejecting is the things that we've modeled. Now, what do we do about that? Do we quit our jobs? Do we not work? Do we? No, that's not the answer. Because the Bible has a very high view of work in its proper balance, right? So, so, the biblical narrative isn't that we just sit around and do nothing. Certainly not. Okay? Work is a part of our activities as humans. God said, go into the world, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, which is to work it, to cultivate it. It is a part of it in its proper balance. So the question is, what does an ancient biblical song or psalm have to speak about something like this? Can we find something in these songs of ascent, these psalms that would have been sung, a lot of S's here this morning, by these people as they were traveling the roads into Jerusalem? Is there some wisdom we can find in this? And I bet you could guess my answer is yes. You see, at the heart of the, the Jewish national life was the temple. 
the temple in Jerusalem was at the heart of everything that they, how they, their communal life together. And there were three main festivals that took place throughout the year um, that would cause the, the people to make a trip from wherever they were at. They were required to make a trip into Jerusalem to participate in these three festivals. These three main festivals, the first one was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorated the, the time where the Israelites had to leave Egypt in a hurry, and they were told not to put leaven in their bread because they didn't have time to let the bread rise. They would have to be, get ready to leave quickly. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorates that experience. There's the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Pentecost commemorates the, the law that was given at Sinai, okay? And so they would celebrate this feast to, to remember this, uh, that time. And, and then the third one was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And this commemorated the time that the Israelites spent in the wilderness where they lived in tents and, and, and uh, would, would travel from place to place in tents. And so they had these three main festivals that every year the Israelites would have to make a trip into Jerusalem to participate in these three festivals. Now these three, th these three festivals originally had an agricultural emphasis. They, they began and ended at different uh, times of harvest in the, in the calendar cycle of, of the life of, of a Jewish person who's living and farming in a community. Um, it was all of this agricultural rhythm that, that made up these festivals. For instance, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. Um, this was a feast that commemorated the, the remembrance of, of the idea behind it is that no amount of work that you can do will bring a harvest if the Lord doesn't bring rain. Okay, so this is the idea, is that you need to stop what you're doing and remember that you can work all you want, all day long, and, and, and work the ground, but if God doesn't bring rain, you ain't going to get a harvest, right? common sense stuff. And so what would happen is at the Feast of Tabernacles, they would go into Jerusalem. They would spend seven days uh, camped around the temple outer courts. And every day they would go to the outer courts. They would gather together. They would hang out. They would talk. There would be lectures. There would be teachings where they would all gather together. And then at the end of the day, a priest would come out with a jug of water and he would stand in front of the people and he would pour out the water on to the ground. And again, this was to symbolize that, that you can work all you want, but if the Lord does not pour out the living water, no harvest in life and growth can happen. And so it was a way to say we must remember that we can do all the work we want, but if God does not pour out the living water onto the earth, no harvest will come. Now, let's have a little side Jesus nerdy moment for a second, okay? In John chapter 7, we have this story of Jesus, and he's celebrating what feast? Feast of Tabernacles. And in John chapter 7, he's at the Feast of Tabernacles, and it tells us at the end of the chapter that on the final day, when everyone's gathered together, Jesus stands up in the middle of the crowd, and it says he shouts out. He shouts out, probably at the same time you can imagine the priest is pouring out the water. Jesus stands up and says, this is my moment. If anyone comes to me, he will not be thirsty. Flow through him. It's like Jesus just says a peripheral mic drop. Boom. Can you imagine the crowd at that moment going, wait a minute. 
Jesus is saying he's that powerful moment. Feast of Tabernacles. This is what's going on. Okay, let's get back to our discussion. These moments, these, these uh, situations that the Israelites found themselves in, um, they, would, they would make their trip into Jerusalem. They would walk along the dusty road, and they would be singing songs, and they're songs of celebration, songs of lament, songs of blessing, whatever it is. And one of the psalms that they would have sung is Psalm 127. Now, in 127, Psalm 127, uh, we see a psalm that's forcing us to prioritize, or at least to look in the mirror and ask the question, do we have our priorities straight? Psalm 127, at its core, is if the, as they were singing it, is, is a psalm that's, that's getting them to think, to look in the mirror and go, wait, are my priorities straight? Okay, so this is at the heart of what's going on, and I want us to read it this morning. So if you have your Bible or, or phone or whatever device you use to look at Scripture, let's open up to Psalm 127. We're going to read this together. And, um, and, and again, whatever translation you, you have is fine. It, uh, it, it'll be similar. But let me read it out loud to you. This is Psalm 127. Then we're going to look at this psalm and, and, and maybe pull out some insights that, that we can learn from that has to do with all of this conversation we've been having this morning. So it says this. It's a short psalm, five verses. Unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. Unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with centuries will do no good. It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat. For God gives rest to his loved ones. Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. Children born to a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hand. How joyful is the man whose quiver is full of them. He will not be put to shame when he confronts his accusers at the city gates. Okay, some thoughts about Psalm 127. Immediately you're going to notice that it seems that there are two things happening in this psalm. Like, there are almost two parts to it. And there are. In fact, some of your translations might even have a gap between the, the part one, which makes up verses one and two, and part two, which is three through five. And these two gaps there make you go, okay, it seems like we're talking about two different things. But the, and there are truths within these two things. But I want to step back a little bit further and remind us that this is actually one song. So whatever two parts are in this song, they are related to each other somehow. And so we got to ask the question, how, are these, how do these things go together? Because they would have sung, sung this as one full psalm, not two different songs, okay? So there are two parts, but it's actually one whole that it's speaking to. And so part one is verses one through two, and it reminds us that really the work that I do can only provide so much. So at the heart of this, it's like, it's trying to get us to remember that like, all the work that I do can only take us so far if the Lord doesn't bless it. Now, we should have in the back of our minds right now, uh, Jesus speaking to us, something like maybe Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Do not worry about tomorrow, what you will eat, what you will wear. 
Do not be anxious. This is, this is what we should hear at this point. It's like there's a point of our lives that no amount of work uh, that I put into something is, it, it matters if the Lord isn't in it, if he is not there. I shouldn't, I shouldn't need to worry about the thing, the, the provision, the food I'm going to eat, the, how I'm going to you know, get the promotion, how am I going to take care of my family, how am I going to get the things I want, how am I going to create a life that, that it's going to be great for my family. All these things that cause worry and anxiousness and and, and, and concern that causes us to live in an overperformance, overworked culture. The first part here is trying to get us to go, stop, 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 right? Your work's only going to take you so far, okay? So then we have part two that then's added into it, and we read part two, and we're like, wait, what, what does kids have? To, why is he talking about this? Okay, so at, at, at the heart of this, we need to understand that the Bible wasn't written to us, but it was written for us, okay? So the Bible wasn't written to you, but it was written for you. And that's an important distinction because we've got to remember that this portion, this psalm was written to a group of people that lived at a certain time, at a certain place, that had a certain culture and certain things that they did that were very different than what we do here today and how we live our lives. So the question is, what, what about this thing about kids is important? And in the ancient world, Having children or having a family was a sign of blessing and abundance from God. Okay? In, in all ancient cultures, if you had a, a, a family, if you had lots of uh, family around you, that was a sign that the, the gods, the whatever that you're serving, is blessing you. You have abundance. Okay? So this was, this was a part of value and blessing. There's a lot that can be said about, you know, how great kids are, right? Yeah, some of the time, okay? But, um, no, just, I have two kids, so it's okay, I can say that. Um, it, it is true, but there is a greater truth at the heart of this that's happening that, that I think I, I would like us to see this morning. And, and, it's, and it's simply this. The blessing of, of, of children in this, in this statement is a statement about the blessing of the relationships around you. So imagine if you were, you were an ancient Israelite, you're heading to the festival, you're walking on the dusty road, and you begin to sing Psalm 127. Immediately, the people around you, which were definitely your family, your kids, and maybe there's uncles and aunts or whatever, this, this group of people that you're walking with, you're singing a song that's reminding you that we've stopped our work. We're going to stop working for seven days so we can celebrate this festival, which means I'm not tending to the field. I'm not, I'm not working the ground. I'm not doing the things I need to do to take care of me. I'm going to stop that, and we're walking. We're going to stop work. And then, and then can you imagine the, the laughter and, and the stories and the joy and, 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 and you're delighting in, in, in your kid that's, that's on the path, you know, going through the, the, you know, picking up rocks and throwing it and you're having conversations and you're talking about life. You're spending time with people, relationships. At the heart of this, the blessing, the, the greatest blessings God gives us isn't abundance, isn't security, it's relationships. Think of the greatest memories of joy and laughter you've had, and I would argue that it probably involved someone else. Now, you might just say, well, Joe, I don't know. If, if relationships are a blessing, I want to turn my blessings in. Okay, I get relationships can be hard. Absolutely, they can be hard. 
but they are also the most rewarding thing God can ever give you. Here's the thing that we need to understand. This is the beauty, one of the many things that makes the church beautiful, but one of the main things that makes us beautiful is us together living life, sharing life together, being a family together, where we welcome in people who are on the outside. It's the beautiful thing. It's about relationships. The work I produce, the emphasis of the work I produce cannot come at the cost of relationships. I loved working with my father. I look back and I, and I, I okay, I loved it. I don't know if I loved it. But um, I can look back now and be thankful for it. But what I wanted most from my father was not to mend a fence, not to repair a sprinkler line, I wanted to have a great conversation with my dad. I wanted him to put his arm around me and say, son, let's talk about life. How you doing? We could have been doing that while we worked for all I cared. But that's what I really wanted. I wanted relationship. I wanted relationship. Before we look at this psalm and... and um, and unpack how we respond to something like this. I want to take a moment and address our students, a few students, maybe young adults in the room. Because earlier in my message, I kind of got on us old people um, about the way that we look down sometimes on the younger generation. They're not like us, and they, they need to work harder and be like this. And we're going, oh, maybe, oh, maybe we're modeling the wrong thing. Here's the, here's the thing. I want to talk to students in the room because at the, at the heart of this is this is about where we spend our time. Right? Because work can be a nine-to-five, sure. But there's a lot of non-nine-to-five things that we inappropriately spend our time. There's an imbalance that we inappropriately spend our time on the things that don't matter most. Like people. Okay? So where we spend our time matters. How we spend our time matters. And to our next generation coming up, here's my challenge for you. There was a, a video I saw the other day uh, from a guy named Dino Ambrosi who gave a lecture on uh, the battle for your time. And I took a clip of that, and I want to show you the clip today. It's just a short clip. Uh, I put in your notes, sermon notes, if you grabbed it, where you can find the full video, and I highly encourage you to go watch it. But this is a clip, and this is what he had to say about the battle for our time. And maybe this might mean more, you know, to, to some adults in the room too. But take a look at this. The dots on this screen represent an adult life in months, assuming a life expectancy of 90. So if you're 18 years old right now, this is an optimistic estimate of the months that you have left. Take a second to take that in. Probably not as many as you would expect. And I'm sorry to say that it does get worse because about a third of that time is going to be spent sleeping. On average, 126 of those months will go to school and your career. About 18 will be spent driving, 36 cooking and eating, 36 doing chores and errands, and about 27 in the bathroom and taking care of personal hygiene. So that leaves you with 334 months, optimistically, for everything else. So this is where you tick the boxes on your bucket list. This is where you pursue your passions and travel the world 
and leave your mark. How you spend this time is going to determine the quality of your life. But today, the average 18-year-old in the United States is on pace to spend 93% of their remaining free time looking at a screen. That is not counting time for school. That's both convicting to me and a little scary to think about. When we live like this, we lose an ability to look up and see this. Like the adult who works at an unhealthy rate, so too do those who spend an unhealthy amount of time looking at a screen. We should stop like the psalm tells us to. Look around and see the blessings that God has given us. The blessings of each other. The greatest gift God could give us. As we consider some things that we should think about, some responses we should have to a psalm like this, here's some questions I want to leave you to consider. What are your rhythms of rest? Where do you stop producing for your own gain and rest in the blessings that God has provided? What's your rhythm of rest? The Bible's very clear about this thing called Sabbath. Shabbat, which means stop. If God rested, what makes us think we're better than him by not? But Joe, I got to get that income. I know you do. I, I, I got to get the hours in so that I can put food on the table. I know you do. Jesus said, don't be anxious about that. What you, what you wear, what you'll eat. The Lord knows. Do you trust him? Do you trust that if you put the right things in the right spot, God will take care of you? You need to rest. You need to spend time doing the important things. What do you need to say no to so you can say yes to the important things? What do you need to say no to so you can say yes? Joe, I don't have time to do that. You need to start saying no. So you can say yes. Secondly, what are the blessings that God has provided that you need to remind yourself of? What are the blessings? And again, I'm not talking about, well, I got a great home. Oh, the blessing of this car. Cool, yeah. I don't doubt that God blessed that. But those are things that are here today and gone tomorrow. Right? Right? The great job you have now, three months, you may not have it. You don't know. Relationships, though, those things leave an impression forever. 
Who are the people in your life that maybe you need to call and just say thank you? Who's the, who's the person you need to, you know, and, and I'm not going to say text. I'm going to say call. People don't make phone calls, Joe. Yes, they do. And yes, we should. The voice, the tone, the care, the tenderness. Hey, I just want to say, I really appreciate you. You just really, you've really made an impact in my life. And I don't know if I've ever said that, but thank you. Doesn't that sound a lot better than a text? Thank you for the things that you have done for me, period. I don't know. Who do you need to say thank you to? Because they are a blessing in your life. As we get ready for communion, if you didn't grab communion on your way in, we have some uh, helpers that are going to come up with a basket. All right. Jim and Joe Lynn, we love you. Thanks for coming up. They have a basket of uh, our communion. And if you didn't grab one on your way in, just lift your hand. Let them know that you need some. And they'll hand you uh, a little communion as we get ready to um, partake together. And um, I just want us to sit in these questions. Sit in this conversation. What are you challenged by? What is God saying to you? What are the areas of your life you're beginning to reevaluate? Let's listen to what the Lord is saying to us this morning because He is speaking if you have ears to hear. And then we'll come together and partake. But for a moment, let's let this sink in. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he shared a meal with his close friends. And in that meal, he took bread.